The rest of us turn to Romans 3. We're going to continue in the series of Romans, book of Romans. So how much would you spend to build a bridge to nowhere? How much? Zero. How much would you spend to build a bridge to nowhere? Have you heard of Alaska's Gravina Island Bridge? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's often called the bridge to nowhere. It's supposed to be built at the cost of $398 million. We've replaced a ferry that connects the town of Ketchikan and, and, uh, with Gravina Island. But in 2005, the United States Congress removed the earmark for the bridge, and it didn't happen. But there it was, ready to go. A bridge, basically, to nowhere. Unfortunately, many people expend time, they expend money and energy in an attempt to build a bridge to heaven. And it's not going to happen. It can't. It doesn't work. No amount of money, no amount of time or effort can span the gulf that separates God and sinners. It, it, just, it just cannot happen. The message today will emphasize God's grand plan of salvation, assuring us that Jesus is the only bridge to heaven, and the redeeming work of Christ is available to all through faith. The gift of eternal life is available to everyone, freely given by God through Jesus Christ. And since it's a gift, it's free. You just have to receive it. And I trust that most of you here today have received that gift of eternal life. But I never want to assume anything when it comes between you and God. Not at all, because that is, that is usually a personal thing and something that I can only prompt you in and allow the Holy Spirit to continue His work in that area in your life. Now, righteousness from God is the main theme of Romans. And it first appeared in the 17th verse of the first chapter. Righteousness is mentioned more than 30 times in the 14 chapters, the first 14 chapters of Romans. And beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul outlined the unrighteousness of humanity and the fact that God's righteousness includes judgment against sin and wickedness. When people pass judgment, they only condemn themselves. But when God judges, He is always accurate and always just. And in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, Paul said that being a Jew meant more than having Jewish parents or knowing or, or teaching God's law or being circumcised. He said, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, verse 29. It is not the external display, but the internal attitude that counts. Now, although the first eight verses of, of chapter 3 deal with Jewish questions about Christianity, they are also beneficial to non-Jews who want to understand basic Christian beliefs. They explain the futility of our own efforts at being righteous, including the attempt to outthink God. You can't. And some of us kind of think we can at times. We get caught up into that. But you can't outthink God. So in the first eight verses, Paul answered questions he might have actually fielded in a Jewish synagogue. He always went there first whenever he visited the different places in his journeys. And he may have, uh, he may have had some of these questions asked. But when we consider them, we see they are the questions people of all backgrounds ask God. 
So we're going to look at these questions and then follow up with the source of our hope. So in verses 1 through 8, Romans chapter 3, follow along as, as we read this together. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Let's stop there for a moment. We're going to see here God's holiness is revealed throughout His Word. Let's take a closer look here, though, at these questions that Paul raises. The first one you can see here in verses 1 and 2. What advantage is there of being a Jew? What advantage is there of being a Jew? And in spite of a long history of persecution, suffering, and displacement, the Jews have always believed they are God's chosen people, as Isaiah 65 verse 9 tells us. And they enjoyed God's special favor. To the Jewish mind, it may seem that Paul's theology cancels all these benefits. The first question a Jew might ask is, what advantage then is there being a Jew? In Paul's response, he says, much in every way. First of all, and it sounds like he's making a list here. It seems like he's got a list of advantages, but he only named one. And so Paul's first of all meant that the greatest advantage more powerful than any others combined, is that the Jews have the very words of God. The King James says, unto them were committed the oracles of God, in verse 2. Aaron used the breastplate with the Urim and Thummim to receive the oracles of God and make godly decisions. Other oracles housed in the Ark of the Covenant included Moses' staff, Aaron's staff, the stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments, containers of manna, and more. But the greatest oracle of God is His Word. Not just the Ten Commandments, but also the entirety of the Old and New Testaments together. The Law and the Prophets, along with the rituals and ceremonies, summoned the Jews into God's presence so they, they could hear from Him. So the rituals and ceremonies might fade away, but if the worshiper still had God's word, he had the advantage. He still had God. So there is an advantage to being a Jew. Another question is asked here. Second question is, uh, is God always faithful? As we see in verses 3 and 4. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? God's faithfulness is His changelessness. There's a nice big word. Changelessness. God's faithfulness is His changelessness. 
God always remains in relationship with humanity in a way consistent with his holiness and his love. When life on earth is done and the final judgments are given, every soul that has ever lived will agree that God has exercised judgment and forgiveness consistently and justly. God is in a covenant relationship with humanity. We can be thankful it is not a contractual relationship. While a contract may be broken if one party fails to keep its obligations, God's covenant with humanity is everlasting. The traditional wedding vows constitute a marriage covenant in which there is no escape clause. The Old Testament prophet Hosea illustrated the power of a covenant by repeatedly restoring his unfaithful wife. And you can read up on that in Hosea, the first three chapters. In the same way, though Israel has proved faithless, God remains faithful. He keeps on loving. He will be true even though every man is a liar. And in verse 4, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge, is a quotation from David's prayer confessing the, the twin sins of adultery and murder. True to the spirit of genuine repentance, David cried out, he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Is God always faithful? Yep. He is always faithful. God is always faithful. Another question, a third question comes up in verses 5 and 6. Is God unjust? But if our right, unrighteousness, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? When God remains faithful to love and to judge in spite of our up-and-down performance as Christians... Our poor performance highlights His holiness. Isaiah cried out in chapter 6, verse 5 of Isaiah, he says, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Our lack of righteousness demonstrates God's rightness. He declares humanity to be sinful, and we prove Him right by sinning. And so the question comes. <laughs> this third question suggests that God somehow benefits from being right about our sinfulness, and that as a result, we should not be judged for our sin. It was a win-win situation for God. If God's people did not sin, then God could show covenant kindness to them. If God's people did sin, then God could allow them to suffer promised curses, but then still be gracious to them. So a win-win situation for God. So if God came off looking good in either circumstance, then why should sin bother Him so much? He turns out pretty good either way. And Paul's response was, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? And if God judges no one, then evil goes unpunished, innocent people suffer, Wicked people sin with freedom, and God is Himself unjust and ceases to be God. This cannot be. Is God unjust? <laughs> no. God is just. And then a fourth question found in verses 7 and 8. Why am I condemned as a sinner then? If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? 
Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? This argument illustrates the deviousness of the human heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 speaks of. Someone once said, Human beings cannot do what they truly believe to be wrong. They find a way to make it right, and then they do it. We see why Paul devoted several verses to this one question. The law-keeping Jews had been twisting Paul's words, as you kind of noticed that there in that verse. These Jews feared acceptance of a gospel of grace that could lead to a morally sloppy living. They, the Jews rightly sensed that God could, would have no respect for those who carelessly disobeyed him. And knowing they could immediately confess their sin and receive grace to hold them until their next planned disobedience. It just seemed too easy. And too easy to continue on in the sinning. And Paul agreed with the Jews on this point. You're right. It shouldn't be that cycle of sin. He preached to God who offered grace. Not as an excuse for sin to be used by those who say, let us do evil that that good may result but as a force strong enough to help people defeat sin. Paul's response was abrupt and and unmistakable. He said their condemnation is deserved. (laughs) He would not dignify such a question with a reply. So from these first eight verses, we can make the following observations about God's holiness in all this. First, God's holiness is, does not rest on rituals like circumcision, but is found in His Word. Secondly, God's holiness does not rest on an individual's response to God, but on God's faithfulness. Remember, it's a covenant. As God continues to be faithful, even though we are not, we can can rely upon the fact that He is continuing to be faithful. God's holiness also, too, God's holiness is not the source of injustice, but rather God himself is a source of unblinking justice. Continues on. And God's holiness finally does not encourage sin and wickedness, for God is not a contradiction. He is, as Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 says, and also Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 says, holy, holy, holy. So the four questions in these first eight verses cast doubt on God's holiness. Paul answered each question and showed that we ourselves are the reason for any separation between God and us. Isn't that just like people? Whatever is amiss in us, we blame on someone else. It's not our fault that we're in this situation. If so-and-so didn't do this, if so-and-so would have done this, it's not my fault. And then in verses 9 through 20, which we won't spend time on today, Paul exposed the complete sinfulness of the human heart. If you haven't read that yet, uh, you can read through that and just see how Paul is bringing out all the, the, the gunk in humanity, I guess. But in verse 21, hope emerged as he turned his gaze away from sin and gave attention to our, to our source of hope, God himself. So we're going to look at that right now as Paul looks at this as well in verse 21. Verses 21 through 24 well, see here that human nature is, is, is sinfulness, and there is only one remedy. Only one remedy. Look with me in verse, 
verses 21 through 24. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We'll stop there at this moment. Some physical ailments can be treated at home with supplies from the family medicine cabinet. Other ailments require a doctor's care and maybe even hospitalization. And the wise person recognizes the difference between the two. You're not going to pop a few aspirins if you uh, have a leg cut off. You're, you're not going to be that silly in those situations. But sometimes when we look at life, we get that way. My father, who consulted doctors only a few times in his life, became sick and didn't improve. And around this time last year, he was finally coerced to see a doctor and discovered that he needed cancer surgery. The surgery was performed, but his delay caused the cancer to spread into other areas of his body. He was instructed to get chemotherapy even after the surgery. The doctor said, you need to go through these treatments. But he figured that he could get by on what he figured was right for him. He didn't need that stuff. He'd be able to be fine, live, live it out. And he didn't last much more than five months when he passed away last summer on July 23rd. There are many who think they know better than God and believe they have the solution to the diagnosis of sin in their life. They don't need a great physician. They know how to deal with stuff. We don't need all this. We don't need to go to church. We don't need a, a savior. We, we, we have a remedy of this. We know the solution. Try harder, right? Self-effort, that's what we can do. They ignore the great physician's instructions and build that bridge to nowhere. There's no amount of human effort that will wipe away the sin in our lives. We can't be kind enough. We can't help others enough. We can't live good enough. We can't attend church enough. Those things won't get us to heaven. The only hope for humanity is the righteousness from God, apart from the law. The nature of human righteousness is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Familiar verse that if you shared the gospel with somebody, that's part of it. That's the bad news. <laughs> There's nothing good in us. If we are to have anything good, it has to come from outside. Fall short of the glory of God. It means that we do not come up to God's righteousness. Not the righteousness He expects of us or the righteousness He put in us at creation. All our efforts and good works, all our traditions and definitions, they don't in themselves produce in us a holiness that comes close to what God puts in us by faith. Our self-manufactured holiness can never approach God's holiness. It always falls short. One day an expert in the law tested Jesus by asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer left the lawyer feeling embarrassed. 
And Luke said he wanted to justify himself. And in plain English, the lawyer wanted to look good. You know, if I were to tell you I was going to stop by your house this week unannounced to pay you a visit, see how you're doing, pray with you and all that, what's the first concern you might have? The the house. It's a mess, exactly. Clean it up quick. Here comes Pastor Jim. I've had moments sometimes when I've been walking up the steps and I've seen people scurrying around the house. I just kind of chuckle because I know the same thing would happen at our house as well. Clean up the messy house so you look good. This is the human inclination. We want to look good. And God wants us to actually be good. There's a big difference. We become good, we become righteous when we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's no amount of cleaning up that we can do to ourselves that's going to get us there. Jesus is the way. He's the one justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul explained how we can be made righteous. He said this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now notice that Paul's primary concern was not getting to heaven. It was getting into a new standing before God, a rightness before God. After demonstrating the unrighteousness of humanity in those verses 9 through 20 that we didn't read, he announced that the way to righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul insisted on lifestyle Christianity, not fire insurance Christianity. And so many times today, people are involved with the fire insurance Christianity. They get saved and they think, okay, I'm good to go. I can do whatever I want after that. And that's not true. It needs to be a lifestyle, not just a fire insurance. He insisted, Paul insisted on holiness of heart and life. Notice the following elements of the gospel here that are found in verses 22 through 24. In verse 22, it is from God. Also in verse 22, it comes through faith in Jesus, not human effort. Another one in verse 22, it is available to all. Another one in verse 23, it is the perfect remedy for sin. There's nothing else. It's a perfect remedy for sin. Verse 24, by this gospel, the repentant are justified, made right with God. And that happens this side of heaven, by the way. You become righteous before God. He saves you. He cleans you up. You don't have to wait to heaven for that one. You you do that now. You receive that. And also in verse 24, all this is God's plan made possible by His grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's grace. Through the gospel, God accurately diagnoses our our sin condition and invites us to come to Him for deliverance. The, the, The four questions asked at the beginning of this chapter in Romans, attack the holiness of God and question His motives. But then in verses 25 and 26 that we're going to look at here, 
make it clear that God's motives remain pure, remain unmixed, as he demonstrated by paying the price for our sin. So verses 25 and 26, we'll see salvation is complete through Christ's atonement and grace. Look with me in those two verses. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Verse 25 defines the redemption that came by Christ. This redemption was accomplished when God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Verse 25. This tells us who stands behind the plan of salvation and who paid its price. In Genesis chapter 22, God stopped Abraham from offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But when it came to securing salvation for humanity, God did not shy away from paying the ultimate price by sacrificing his only son. He did it for you. He loves you and me so much. Even before we knew him, while we were his enemies, he still offered that for us. Sacrifice is a Greek word here, hilasterion, that can be translated into a $25 word, propitiation, or expiation. You don't have to remember those things, but what you can remember is that it is the act of appeasing a deity, therefore incurring divine favor or avoiding divine retribution. So doing something that's going to please God so you don't get you don't get in trouble. Hilasterion appears only here, and also that word appears in the in, in book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 5, where it is translated mercy seat in the King James Version. The mercy seat is that area immediately above the Ark of the Covenant and in between the outstretched wings of the cherubim, where God came to meet the high priests. It is interesting to note that the place where God met humans was not called the judgment seat. It's the mercy seat. Holiness is his nature, and his holiness moves him not first to judgment, but to remove the obstacles that keep humanity from being holy. He wants us to be holy. He wants that relationship with us, and so he's going to remove those obstacles to point us in that direction. If sin is faithlessness to the relationship with God, then God's work of propitiation is an act of utter faithfulness. It is grace from the heart of God. In verse 25, through faith in His blood, it says, it reminds us that the sacrifice of Jesus is not an overwhelming action that sweeps everyone into right standing with God. Just because it happened, all of a sudden everyone's righteous. But it is a conditional act requiring our response of believing faith. We need to respond to his offer. And you've heard the illustration probably many times about Christmas time 
receiving a gift from somebody, you, you, you could look at that gift and go, that's great, and keep it under the Christmas tree, and thank you for giving me that gift, that's wonderful, but you, you never open it, you never receive it, you never get it. And as God has given us the gift of eternal life, it's there, but we have to receive it. We have to open it up and receive it into our life. In verse 25, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, Jesus told of a farmer who allowed wheat and tares, and, and tares are weeds that look like wheat, to grow together until harvest time. At harvest, they were separated, the wheat from the tares. And it is a picture of the church in which souls are mixed together, good and evil, but God does not punish every sin the moment it is committed. He delays so the sinner may have a chance to repent. He also delays to show his justice. Acts 17 verse 30 says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 25, he did this to demonstrate his justice. God's love is always demonstrative. He always demonstrates his love. His greatest display of love is Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. And although the questioner in verse, verse 5 suggests that God is unjust, God is more than just. He is gracious. Gracious to us as well. Every day. His grace is seen in the fact that in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God does not punish every sin the moment it is committed. The last time God did that, the last time God punished sin as it deserved was when he destroyed the earth by flood. Since then, he has patiently waited. He is waiting even now. Have you acknowledged his justice? Have you called on him to justify you? To come into your life? To clean up that sin in your life? He's waiting. He's waiting. I'm going to bring the band up. Worship team, come on up. And they're going to share a couple songs with us. As they come up, listen to Leviticus chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. And hear God's requirements for atoning for sin in the Old Testament. Just listen to this. If someone brings a lamb as their sin offering, they are to bring a female without defect. They are to lay their hand on its head and slaughter it for a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. They shall remove all the fat, just as the fat is removed from the lamb of the fellowship offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the food offerings presented to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven." Well, there you go. Isn't that easy? Imagine you are an Old Testament believer. What would it be like to take a perfectly innocent lamb from your personal flock and offer it as the sacrifice for your sin? 
what if you had to do that every time you sinned? I think we'd be flockless. <laughs> As you read the account of Jesus' crucifixion in one of the Gospels, and you can pick them, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19, consider that Jesus was God's perfect lamb, innocent of sin, but fully willing to lay down his life so you could have forgiveness, so you could have peace, so you could have new life here and now. What will you do with this great offer of love from God? How will you respond? I'll let you figure that out between you and God as we sing these next couple songs. If you need to come pray, you're invited to pray.